0: Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Maudlin College and this afternoon's inaugural George Russo Lecture which has been organised by the College uh, in collaboration with the Voltaire Institute and we're very pleased that this is the inaugural George Russo Lecture and many of you will know that this uh, series has been endowed by Professor George Russo um, who is known to many of you and well known to members of the College Um, Just to give you some idea of how um, George Russo's academic career led to this distinguished high point in kicking off this inaugural lecture series, George um, began his academic career by studying at Amherst and at Princeton. He was then a faculty member for a number of years at Harvard uh, before spending many years at UCLA. And For many of us actually, we first came to know George when he came to Moreland College as a visiting fellow in 1993 and he spent a year here as a visiting fellow and also gave the Wayne Lecture that year uh, before moving on to the Regis Chair in English Literature at the University of Aberdeen. Um, My own recollection of George in that time, in 1993-1994, was not just uh, for his distinction as a cultural historian, but also for his extremely distinguished piano playing. Uh, I think the only time I've seen the anti so full for piano recitals As it was then, was on an occasion when Dudley Moore appeared one day to give an impromptu (laughs) recital. But George uh, impressed us with his um, quite incredible knowledge of Mozart, Beethoven, Schumann, Rachmaninoff, I think, and and other things besides. After his tenure of the Regis Professorship in Aberdeen, George came back to Oxford, uh, partly as co-director of the Institute for the History of Childhood. And he's had a very long and fruitful collaboration with um, our distinguished historians at Maudlin. My own field in the sciences is completely uh, different from that. But one of the things that is a hallmark of George's interests is just how interdisciplinary they are. He's uh, it's barely adequate to describe him as a historian of the eighteenth century. His interests span uh, cultural and intellectual history, um, the history of childhood, the history of gender, and also the history of science and medicine. And he's written prolifically on these themes. So. Um, It's really a great honor to have George here and for this to be the first lecture in what will become an annual series Um, and I'm now going to hand over to Avi who will say a few words by way of specifically introducing today's distinguished speaker.
1: I can only uh, add my uh, gratitude to uh, George for endowing this series of lecture, uh, which will be dedicated to Enlightenment studies from a very interdisciplinary perspective. And um, yeah, we would now like to introduce our speaker uh, who kindly agreed to inaugurate this uh, series. Dan Edelstein is Professor of French Literature and History at Stanford University in California. Is an expert on 18th century France with uh, very uh, interdisciplinary interests as well, so uh, this is quite um, uh, suitable for a George uh, Rousseau lecture. Uh, his uh, research expertise ranges from literature, history, and political thought all the way to uh, digital humanities. Uh, he has just published uh, a book about 18th century discussions of uh, natural rights, human rights, um, entitled On the Spirit of Rights, which Uh, was the subject of uh, a fascinating afternoon colloquium, just uh, right now here at Moblin. And uh, in the previous decade he uh, published uh, The Terror of Natural Right, 2009, and uh, The Enlightenment, a genealogy in 2010, which explored how the narrative of an Enlightenment, of the Enlightenment, um, emerged in French academic circles around uh, the early uh, uh, 18th century. Uh, Dan is also the editor of six different volumes of um, essays, including two published by our own Voltaire Foundation here, the Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment series. Uh, The first one is called uh, The Super Enlightenment 2010. You can't really beat that title. Uh, And uh, there is a forthcoming uh, volume called Networks of Enlightenment, uh, which is due to be published, I think, at the end of 2019 or... No, I don't know. Some, or maybe beginning of next year. So uh, Dan's talk today, the first George uh, Rousseau lecture at Modern College, is entitled Liberty as Equality, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Roman Constitutionalism. Dan. Please.
2: Well, thank you for that introduction um, it's a great honor to be have been invited to give the inaugural George Rousseau um, lecture I'm really delighted to be here um, thanks also to uh, Nicholas Cronk and everyone at the Voltaire Foundation um, for coordinating this um, I will be speaking about a different Rousseau tonight uh, but uh, we'll try to um, emulate professor Rousseau's um, well-regarded well and well-known interdisciplinary approach in, in my own methods, in my own uh, remarks. So I'm going to start with a captatio benevolencia, uh, which is that this is the very first time I have, will be presenting this research. Um, so it's very new, and um, I will uh, may come to regret the decision uh, to present it in such an uh presence. Um, But um, this is a project that was inspired by Benjamin Strauman's recent book, uh, Crisis and Constitutionalism, uh, which goes back to uh, mostly about Roman political thought, but has this insightful argument that we spent too too long um, thinking about classical republicanism as this sort of monolithic thing that exists. uh, And that really what we ought to be doing is disaggregating Uh, classical political thought, especially Roman political thought, um, and and studying the various um, trajectories of specific ideas. And that's really what I want to do uh, in my talk tonight, Uh, and I'll be focusing on this concept of legal equality. Uh, And what also spurred me to, to look at legal equality was this observation that it plays a very important central role even in Rousseau's political thought. Um, and in particularly in the way he defines liberty, um, and what uh, it wasn't, what what made me curious about this, is that he ends up coming up with a very different defense for r- what is often referred to as Republican or Neo-Roman liberty, a uh, different. Kind of way of justifying how we can guarantee this than most current scholars working on neo or republic liberty tend to so think about. It. So let me first say a word about what they think. Um, so this is a concept that is closely associated with um, uh, Quentin Skinner and Philip Pettit in particular, and um, they uh, they identified this what Skinner called third concept of liberty as being more than simply the lack of interference to do something. So I, I might have the liberty to um, go through the street and go to the market and come back. There'd be no one interfering with, with that. Uh, but their point is, well, if I'm a Roman slave, I might have <coughs> the liberty to go out and do shopping in the farm, um, and no one is interfering with me. However, I am a slave, and therefore, I do have a master who at any point could interfere with me. And so there is still, I'm not really free because there is risk of domination, which therefore um, impedes my freedom. Um, so it's really, the, the key definition here is what is freedom as non-domination? And how does that differ from what, say, Isaiah Berlin defined just as, as pure negative liberty? Now Rousseau fits very nicely into this um, concept of republican freedom, and even though, as Sidney who's here, um, observed, it, t- it did take some of the Anglophone writers a while to admit uh, Rousseau into this, this pantheon. Um, indeed, Philip um, Pettit originally um, just in, said that Rousseau was a full populist, um, and, and though he has since come around to the position that Rousseau did keep faith with um, the Republican conception of freedom as non-domination. Um, and um, anne de Dunne, uh, who's also here, has really um, produced, I think, to date, the most rigorous defense of Rousseau as a theorist of Republican liberty, um, arguing that it was for him the most important political value. So my goal tonight isn't to challenge his place as a theorist of Republican liberty, but rather to point out that he Guarantees Republican liberty in a somewhat surprising way. So for most theorists of Republican liberty, um, the way in which we can be guaranteed not to be subject to domination is through active participation in the legislative process. So here's a quote from, from Skinner's liberty um, before liberalism: that it's really if you have an equal right in the of particip- participation in the making of laws, um, that is what guarantees that you will not become dominated by another. Um, Pettit has a very similar view. Um, You have to be an enfranchised member of a voting committee, uh, sorry, a voting community, and it's all about determining laws. Um, You could say that this is an argument that to escape non-domination, you need autonomy. You have to be able to give yourself the laws that you live by. Um, And I'll call this the democratic solution to the problem of guaranteeing freedom as non-domination. And what I want to show tonight is that Rousseau gives us a different solution to this, one that does not rest on having an equal right in the making of laws. And instead, he repeatedly insists that the way to guarantee freedom as non-domination is for no one to be above the law, or conversely, for everyone to be equally subject to the same law. Um, And therefore, I call this the equality solution. Now, it's a little murky, because I don't want to suggest that Rousseau overtly rejects the democratic solution. Um, But I do feel that the equality solution plays a much bigger role in his political thought, and that there are moments when it does kind of overshadow and even replace the democratic solution. Um, But generally, I am... I would... I would not want to suggest that this is um, a complete alternative. They are, they are fairly complementary. Um, what I will, will try to do, though, is show that this is an idea that does not come out of nowhere, but actually that he is getting this idea from Roman political theorists, um, Livy and Cicero in particular, um, and, uh, and that in a way it is perhaps most helpful to think about Rousseau through this lens of Roman constitutionalism. Um, And others, like John McCormick and Valentina Arena, have also been been pushing this line of argument. So I'm going to start with one of Rousseau's sort of more minor works in political thought, the uh, dedication to the second discourse, um, which many have quipped is actually better suited as a dedication for the um, social contract. and indeed, I will be getting to the social contract later. So, Russo starts off this, this text. Um, it's dedicated to the Republic of Geneva. Um, and he starts it off by kind of having this veil of ignorance argument saying, well, if I were to choose where I would want to live in order to be free, these are the conditions I would choose. So, one of the conditions is indeed that he would live in a democratic government that is well-tempered. And I think that's a really key point here of of what does it mean to have a well-tempered democratic government. Um, I'll get back to that a bit later. But the point is, it's not just a pure democratic government. So that's The first point, if if you want to live in a free state, there does have to be this well-tempered democratic government, but when he comes to defining freedom, he moves away from um, this democratic solution. Instead, he writes, I would have chosen to live and die free, that is, so subject to the laws, that neither I nor anyone else could throw off their honorable yoke. And what's noticeable about this claim is that he's not saying anything about the source of the laws. It doesn't say who gets to make the laws. He's only saying something about who is subject to the laws. And you could argue that well, he already took care of that question the source of the laws when he said he wanted a democratic government. Um, but I, I don't believe that it's a sufficient cause and I think we need to take seriously this idea that there are two separate requirements for freedom. One is that there's some kind of well-tempered democracy, but also um, um, a legal regime where no one is above the law. And later on in the, in the dedication, it's very clear that mere democracy is, is insufficient since he, he writes, I would not have wanted anyone in the state to claim that they were above the law, for regardless of a government's constitution, if one person is not subject to the law, everyone else is at their mercy. So there are two important uh, ideas that he's adding here. The first is that popular sovereignty is insufficient, guarantee it? because it's regardless. It Can caprice act constitution? So even in a democracy, there could be individuals who are above the law, and indeed, many of our own democratic systems today have um, legal impunity for um, certain um, chief executives who cannot, in fact, be <coughs> indicted, uh, according to certain justice departments. So <laughs> he has a point. Um, but I also uh, want to draw attention to this phrase, personne dans l'état De la loi, because I think this very clearly echoes um, an important passage in the Roman Digest, uh, which you would have known because this is uh, a super-famous passage, this concept that um, the prince is not bound by the laws. Um, this was central to um, early modern constitutional thinking, um, especially monarchic thinking, because the idea was, well, how could the king change the law if he is bound by the law. And so you need, just from a structural perspective, you need somebody who is not bound by the law so that they can be changed when necessary. Um, there was a more sort of absolutist version of that argument, which you find, say, in Filmer, um, where the king is not only not bound by laws, but is completely free to do whatever, whatever he wants, um, to do what he pleases. Um, this too is sort of an interpretation of a passage in the digest um, that whatever pleases the prince has the force of, of the law. Um, but I think what's, what's important here is that Rousseau is taking, so of course, this comes from the digest, the imperial codification of Roman law done under Justinian. And Rousseau is sort of saying, well, if you want a republic, you have to reverse this imperial concept. Nobody can be uh, um, above the law, and instead, you need to have legal equality. So that's the first point. Um, But moreover, it's very interesting how throughout the the dedication, Rousseau repeatedly conceptualizes liberty in a way that is distinct from autonomy or democratic legislation. And this is a really important passage. Sorry, right, it's a bit long. It's, um, there this is the longest slide I'll show you. Um, I'll just read you a translation um, if your French is rusty. So it goes: even the Roman people, that model of all free peoples, was not prepared to govern itself after overthrowing the Tarquins, to the last kings of Rome. At first, they were just a dumb model that needed to be governed with utter sagacity so that, little by little, growing accustomed to breathing the salutary air of liberty, their souls gained by degrees that moral severity that made them into the most respectable of peoples. Now, what's striking here is that he's saying that they were already breathing the salutary air of liberty before they were governing themselves. Uh, And this is, of course, under a republic, but they are not living upon Because they are being governed by others. Um, So, uh, this already hints at something very important in Roman law, namely, well, in Roman political thought, that freedom is less defined in terms of participation in lawmaking than it is in the universal obedience to the law. And we'll see more examples of that later. And I think this is important because it changes how we. Um, define freedom in a republic and means that more people can be considered free even if they are not necessarily enfranchised. So another example comes from um, also from the dedication concerns women. Um, so Rousseau has this interesting passage in the dedication where he refers to the Citoyenne so giving them a you know, political name, the, the the female citizens of Geneva and says that they are the guarantors of political liberty in Geneva Um, it is uh, so that actually comes a little bit earlier I didn't give you that quote here um, he explains why they guarantee liberty and it is because they preserve by uh, their loving and innocent rule as well as by their inspiration a love of the laws in the state and harmful citizens um, this is—it's interesting. He, the phrase he uses, "l'amour um, des lois," is, I think, borrowed from Montesquieu in the "Avertissement," uh, the uh, opening of the "Spirit of the Laws," where this is how he defines political virtue—that um, political virtue is someone who acts according to the love of laws of their country. But it's quite fascinating that Rousseau is uh, applying this to women. Uh, in the Second Discourse. Um, and and Montesquieu had, in fact, also claimed that in Republics, women are free according to the laws or laws allow women to be free even if morals keep them captive. But I think that this is, there's something interesting here in how these authors consider that women can be free even if they are not participating in voting. Um, and I did find a, a passage in Livy that sort of had a similar um, echo. This is when um, Coriolanus's mother comes to berate him for making war on his own country, and and says, you know, if, I, "If I had not given birth to you, I would have died. Libera in libera patria. Uh, I would have died free in a free land." Um, so it, it definitely, there seems to be a conception of liberty that is available to women who clearly are not able to participate in the legislative process, um, and I think. Rousseau is picking up on that here. Now, it could be objected, then, that Rousseau is operating kind of with a weak conception of liberty. Uh, Maybe this isn't Republican liberty, after all. Maybe this is uh, closer to Hobbes' critique of Republican liberty. Um, But where Hobbes had argued that um, freedom is the same, whether you're in a monarchy or, or a popular government, I think it is important to remember that this is only possible in certain kinds of states, or only in these well-tempered democracies. So it's definitely not the Hobbesian position that anyone who um, follows the law has the same degree of freedom. So I want next to um, say a few words about where this idea comes from and, and why it might play such an important role in, in Rousseau's thinking. Um, and this is uh, what takes me back to the, the Roman sources for this. So when Skinner and Pettit put forward their ideas about a Republican era, or, um, I think it's Neo-Roman, the other way around. Yeah, oh yeah, so Skinner likes Neo-Roman, Pettit like Roman, Republican. Um, that uh, they, they do trace this back to certain passages in, especially the Digest definition of. Free man versus slave. Um, and I think um, Skinner also quotes passages in Libby. But their main focus is on the recovery of this in the early modern time, mostly beginning with Machiavelli. Now, more recently, classicists have gone back to Roman sources and looked for you know, the original, they like, said, well, maybe maybe this was not just Neo-Roman, maybe this is really how the Romans thought about it battles of liberty as well. Uh, so Valentina Arena, um, the historian of the Roman Republic, has said yes, but in fact Roman politicians quote um, shared an idea of liberty as a state characterized by the absence of a condition of domination. So very much in dialogue with, um, with Skinner and Pettit. Um, and uh, Jed Atkins also, um, in his um, in his book on Roman political thought, um, Argues that for the Romans, liberty was fundamentally understood as the absence of slavery. Um, But Athens points something else out, uh, which is that there was also this tight connection to equality in Roman reflections on liberty. So he reminds us about this um, famous passage uh, which which many refer to. This is after the Tarquins are expulsed, so the, the beginning of the early Roman Republic. Uh, and the, there's a conspiracy that occurs um, with some of the young patricians who, who quite like the rule of the Tarquins and their friends with the uh, Tarquin princes. And they, this is Libby um, who is voicing their complaints. And the complaint is that all are now equal before the law. Um, and the law, in the Latin is actually right here, legis rem surdum, the law is this deaf thing. Uh, that can, and you cannot catch the ear of the law like you could with the king. Um, so here, again, freedom is not indexed to autonomy, um, but rather to this equality, having all laws be the same for everyone. So the problem isn't that they are not participating in making the law, it's that they have to follow the same law as everybody else, which they didn't have to in the monarchy. Um, and this is a theme that comes back repeatedly in um, Libby's history. So, for instance, during the second secession of the plebs, uh, the consuls, Valerius and Horatius, are sent to convince the plebs not to seek retribution against the senators who are angry at, and their argument is that, well, rather than seeking retribution and killing them, you should just enjoy living in a state under equal laws, and that is enough for, for liberty. Um, One of these disembeers, Appius Claudius Crassus, um, who tried to um, force um, Virginius to marry him, he's confronted in the forum, uh, and his answer is, well, look, I resigned the consulship in order to give you equal laws for all, and actually I offended the the, the patricians. Uh, And then I'll just give one more example from... um, from much later in the history. This is um, when Scipio Africanus is impeached, and there's a big divide in Rome whether we should impeach the hero of, of the Second Punic War. Uh, and some say, well, you know, it is good in a republic that um, even the most powerful people should have to defend themselves. And this is this equality of freedom that, that comes back. So, in almost all of these examples, we see this similar trend, which is that liberty is really about forcing the powerful to obey the law. And I think that's a really fundamental idea which we kind of lost track of in a lot of the histories of non um, domination. Uh, even Jed Atkins ends up concluding uh, that in liberty, this is a quote, equa libertà, so equal liberty generally means. Equality before the law rather than equal political participation. Um, and Cicero has pretty much the same idea. He also pairs libertas with um, a term he invents, equabilitas. Uh, he writes that equality is the most essential property of justice in Deo Fecies. Um, and it is what defines life for a free people um, having equal rights before laws. Uh, this is also a focus of the Republica, which if we should remember, Rousseau is only has fragments of because it's only the full manuscript is rediscovered, well, quasi full in the 19th century. Um, but again, uh, Scipio, who Cicero's mouthpiece in this, um, defines liberty again in terms of equality. If it is not the same for all, si non equa est, um, it is not liberty. And I want to make here another point about what kind of equality are we talking about. Um, because Scipio, uh, Cicero, is very clear that this is not social equality. There's nothing about material equality. In fact, um, Scipio uh, even um, writes that the problem with democracies is that they create an equality that is itself inequitable. Uh, and, so, and this is not really political in the sense we would understand it. There's this interesting middle ground, which I think kind of comes close to Rousseau's idea of a well tempered democracy, where uh, Cicero has this also famous um, line, which actually does get picked up in Augustine, so Rousseau probably did know it that the res publica should be a res populi, that the republic should be the property of the people. That doesn't mean that it's a democracy. way the the people still have to have a kind of sovereignty um, so that it can remain a free state Um, but it is only in um, the free states that um, to skip this um, that we will have these legal rights and that the equality of legal rights um, will be found I I have one last slide on this um, you get the idea, um, but but he's constantly connecting freedom with the equality of equal rights. So f- for both um, Livy and Cicero, the greatest threat to a republic seems not so much to come from a new king, but from, well, there are two great threats to a republic. <laughs> One of them can come from the, the individual powerful um, who uh, tries to be a part sort of the monarchy? But there's an equally pressing danger which comes from the powerful no longer being yoked to the laws. Um, and I think that this is a. I've, I've been teaching a class on the Florentine Republic um, for our overseas program, and it's just striking how much of Florentine politics is about this problem like what to do with these you know, damn elite families who just go about doing whatever they want bonking people on the head with impunity, uh, and so it seems like this this sort of Thrasymachus challenge, you know, the the challenge that Thrasymachus throws down to Socrates in the Republic. Of, well, why isn't might right? Uh, is is haunting all of these um, worries about um, about liberty and its connection to equality? So the Romans had two ways of dealing with how do you create a state that would retain equal rights for all. Um, they did have some rights provisions, to use our contemporary language, um, that would guarantee that everybody had the same equal rights. Uh, so the most famous of these is the provocatio which was the right to appeal a that sentence passed by any official, you could appeal it to a popular tribunal. Um, and this is what actually gets Cicero in trouble. Um, when he's consul. Uh, but they also had legal provisions that prevented new laws from introducing inequalities. The most famous being the law that's in the 12 tables that prevents bills of attainment. So, Privilegia was you know, a private law, but it was a law that targeted a specific individual, um, which were not allowed according to Roman uh, law. So, the basic idea here is that the laws had to be as general as possible. Uh, And I will use that concept to segue back to Rousseau, uh, this time to the social contract, where we will find that same idea. So I do think that it's in the social contract that Rousseau works out many of the more theoretical problems with this idea of how can you really guarantee freedom through legal equality? And how can you do it without also relying on full democratic rule? And Rousseau also adds this additional question, which is, I think, at the heart of the social contract. Well, how do we get the idea of liberty in the first place? Why should we we want these equal rights? Where does that come from? Um, And then finally, this issue of how can you do it without full democracy? How is it possible to maintain Republican liberty if not everybody is voting? So those are the the three questions that I will be looking at in the social contract. So when Rousseau thinks about liberty, he does so in a kind of anthropological perspective of, well, how do we, if we want to become free, how do we first even discover the law? If you believe that freedom is dependent on equal rights and on following the same laws, that does mean that you have to have an understanding of the law beforehand. Um, This was a problem that, again, you already find in Roman law, this idea that the law, how do you make the law something that everybody feels they should obey? Um, And... Brian Tierney, a wonderful medieval historian, has drawn a, a very interesting parallel between this concern in Roman um, law to more contemporary theories of legal normativity. So, where, where is it the idea that we need to follow the law? What grounds that in any sort of normative sense? Um, and he points in particular to Hans Kelsen and Hermann Kantorowicz, who I don't think was related to Ernst. Um, and it, it's interesting to compare Rousseau's answer to, to these 20th century um, jurists because both Kelsen and Kantorowicz came to the conclusion that you can only ground legal normativity outside of the uh, legal system. So um, Kelsen understands famous for his theory. The room to norm is founding norm that um, all other laws. Will um, revert back to, and Kantorowicz thought that well, ultimately the law depends on some kind of external, naturalistic moral principle in order to derive its um, authority. And Rousseau develops this really fascinating rationalist argument that manages to ground legal normativity within the law itself, and he does it on. The basis of the argument that it comes from the equality of all before the law. So I'm going to unpack all of that for you now. Um, so Rousseau is in agreement with with Hobbes that you don't really have justice. I think it looks like justice in the state of nature, um, and uh, and therefore he's rejecting the the available. Argument of, of the nord and Locke have, which is that, you know, actually the same nature. It's kind of a, a judicial world as well. We have contracts because we have natural law. Um, but Rousseau goes farther because Hobbes will say that, well, once you enter into civil society and you have a Leviathan, then in fact natural law does apply and can become a source of normativity. Um, whereas for Rousseau, he almost sounds a bit like a legal positivist in saying that no, legal normativity to the lawfulness of the law arises at the same moment as the political state and that they happen jointly. And they're made possible by this transformative experience of legal equality. Um, indeed, it is the equal terms of the social contract that are what make this all begin. If everybody gives themselves entirely the condition is equal for all. That is how we enter into society, that is how the state is created, and this, as we will see, is also how law and um, how law and liberty come about. Um, And it's a very Roman answer that um, like with Cicero, it's only with the equabilitas juris, these equality of of rights, that we can become a free people. He says so as much here. Um, all, all citizens must enjoy such an equality that they all enjoy the same rights. So it's in this recognition that by joining a social contract, we are all going in on equal terms, and we will therefore all have the same rights, um, that justice and the law come about. So the various foundations of normativity come from the fact that we are agreeing to this sort of shared system of equal rights. So it is the equality of rights and the notion of justice that it produces. So there was no idea of justice until we experienced this idea that, well, it's going to be the same for all. So equality is this structural feature that gives the law its force and makes it something we ought to obey in the first place. Um, and it's quite fascinating how there's nothing naturalistic about this. I mean, there's a rationalist part, <coughs> you could say, friend, but he's not relying even on his own arguments about the natural principles that we have in the state of nature, principles of self-preservation or or pity. This is a completely different way of going about the foundation of um, of legal normativity. Uh, you could even say that legal equality. Um, well, I should mention this is also how we acquire freedom. It's only once we have recognized this law that we all share that we can then be free, because it's only the obedience to the law that gives us freedom. So, legal equality plays a huge role in this. It is supporting the creation of the state, the concept of lawfulness in itself, and the source of liberty all at once. Um, so, I think this is. You know, beginning of understanding why it's so important for, for Rousseau and why it can you know, replace or at least nudge over um, le- democratic um, legislation. Now, this um, does raise the question, well, where do these laws come from? Like, What is this law, even if we're all chipping in um, equally? So many scholars will read this, this line, the, the law that we have given ourselves, um, as, say, that's autonomy. You give yourself the laws and therefore you are being autonomous. But I think there's an important difference here between making the laws for ourselves and simply choosing to accept laws that might come from a completely different source. And we know that in the case of the first laws that uh, create a social um, that create a political state we know they come from somewhere else because we should us. They come from the legislature um, and we are therefore not making the laws for ourselves. And indeed, it would be, in Rousseau's logic, um, impossible for us to give ourselves our first laws because we don't yet have the concept of law. We only get it by um, sort of pooling all of our chips together and equally accepting the laws at the same time. And I think that's the meaning of that famous line which God gods give them laws because he kind of does have that, that chicken and egg problem. Uh, that he saw by this sort of divine legislator figure who um, was able to, to see the importance of law giving. Um, so I want to get to sort of, I think, the most contentious point in, in a minute, which is what happens afterwards, once you enter into political society, and what happens to the future legislative process. But I just want to make two points about why I think it is it would be surprising if Rousseau made um, legislation or the participation in legislation to be central to his defense of liberty. Um, the first is that instead of emphasizing lawmaking, the equal right of participation in law, Skinner's uh, law, instead of emphasizing that as central to, um, to being uh, free, he instead puts massive limits on what, what counts as good laws. And so he's constricting rather than reinforcing law making. Um, we see this in particular in how he thinks about um, what, what makes a law um, valid. So when he talks about the general will um, and how it must uh, recognize um, what are good laws, we see that if the law is no longer general, then it, it, it no, it, it's actually nullifying the very principle that had created lawfulness in the beginning. It, and So we're losing the force of the law. Um, if its object does not matter to everyone, the law cannot have as its object a particularity or an individual. So here we're back to the Roman precept against privilege. Um, if the law is targeting particular people, then that becomes one of the greatest sources, uh, one of the greatest risks to the republic. Um, and again, how do you remedy that? Well, you always go back towards equality. So the natural particular will tends naturally towards preferences and the general will towards equality. So it remains the sort of central um, concept in how to ensure that the laws are not destroying the freedom that, um, that uh, are only possible if we have legal equality. So, this leads me to my, my third and sort of final um, point about liberty, equality, and lawmaking in the social contract, and I think it is the most contentious one. So, we now have a political state, we've we gained the knowledge of what the law is, we have equal rights. What happens next? Who gets to make the laws? Um, could it be that yeah, there's sort of this origin story in which Rousseau has legal equality do all of this magical stuff, but then if you know moving forward, freedom actually becomes related to our access to you know, gathering our assembly, um, and sovereignly declaring the law every every so often. So there are two, at least two, possibly more. Two general camps um, on how to read um, Rousseau on lawmaking once the process has already begun. So some, um, and I put Joshua Cohen, and I think Annalyn is in this camp, but she can can tell me uh, if I'm wrong, uh, read Rousseau as defending really the democratic solution to this, that if you want to be free, then the people have to um, actively participate in making laws for themselves. The other camp, um, which includes scholars like Richard Fralin, John McCormick, and I think Valentina Arena also, read Rousseau more through this Roman lens and say, well, you know, the, the legislative <laughs> process and the social contract looks a lot like the legislative process of the Romans, which really wasn't democratic. Um, there, were, there were votes, and the people had a role to play, but it wasn't anything like we would think of in terms of law making. The people were excluded from lawmaking. Um, so I am going to throw my chips in with, with that uh, with that camp. Um, although I'm not going to draw so much on these parallels between um, the Roman legislative process and um, and what Rousseau says, because that's been very well done um, by others. I want to sort of gather internal evidence from Rousseau's own text about why I don't think it makes sense to look to look for the legislative powers of the citizens as a guarantee of freedom, and instead that it is more about um, this legal equality. So, what is this internal evidence? Well, we just saw that for Rousseau, the goal of lawmaking is to always tend towards equality and generality. So, I think that there is room there for saying if you want that, then you can't just have a small group of patricians decide what the law is. Um, and, and here I would agree with the democratic camp. That there's a kind of a critical mass question that you, you need to, the, the, the state has to be the property of the people. It has to be a, a res populi. otherwise it's no longer a free state. But do you need all the citizens? Do you need every, all the people to be participating in the legislative process For all the people to be free. Now, it's interesting how in Rousseau, every time you add somebody else going to vote, you're you're kind of inserting more problems, right? Because each of us, in order to vote, we We have have to very solemnly in our minds distinguish between the general will and the particular will. And and I think I see it, I think it's over here, so I'm going to (laughs) vote this one. uh, And then the vote is just to confirm that I made that right mental. Relation, you know, there's no talking. We uh, all just go in and we vote. Um, but every time you add somebody else, you know, that's one more person. who might screw up the calculation. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're all supposed to see the same thing. Uh, and so, it's not a kind of Madisonian or you know modern democratic idea that well, you need, you need the red states and the small states and the European, We need the mix to get the general will. Uh, it's, it's a much more um, Ciceronian view, really. That um, you know, you're know, you supposed to always be caring for the good of the entire res publica and not just for one particular interest. So that's one reason why, on Rousseau's own terms, you should be able to do this, even if not everybody is actively participating in the vote. You should be able to preserve liberty um, that way. And, and by extension, maybe you're a woman and you don't have the right to vote anyway in this, but you could still count yourself I should say, I'm not like, endorsing this view, I'm just <laughs> reconstructing uh, his, his argument. But let me give a few uh, rapid fire uh, further reasons why um, I think it makes, does not make sense to, to define freedom in Rousseau's thought according to its So, first of all, there's the argument that actually you're not supposed to need many laws in, in the ideal Rousseau's state. Uh, a a well governed state needs very few laws. And in a way, if you start to make laws, that's a really bad sign. It's a sign that you're starting to um, head more and more towards um, corruption. But this does mean that lawmaking could be a really minor feature in your life as a citizen, uh, because, I don't know, maybe two years ago, you don't pass any laws. Uh, so it's hard to see how you could then make lawmaking so central to the definition of liberty. Um, moreover, when you do make a law, it's a kind of objective thing. Like, the first person who proposed the laws only says what everybody else already felt. So I mean, it's always trivial. Like, well, duh. Like, of course we need to, you know, to raise taxes to fight off what's sell uh, It's supposed to just always happen on the, on the basis of consensus, which also makes it seem like an odd way of defending liberty. Now, this is, I think, the more... Um, we're getting to the more contentious parts, uh, which is that the citizens uh, are really kept at arm's distance from the legislative process. So, as uh, I just mentioned, they don't debate, right? So if has to be silence. You enter into a hall like this. There's a motion on the floor, and you know, it's the a's and the it's No conversation because we're so famous to think thinks. That's how factions are created. Um, so again, that's a you know bizarre to think that your freedom um, is in this law making when you're not even really um, saying anything about it. But, and oh, and then it gets better, which is that sometimes laws just happen. So if, uh, if your government um, passes a decree, uh, it, the, the orders of the government chiefs, um, you know, sometimes, they maybe they are a general rule, and as long as this, the free sovereign doesn't oppose them, then it's become a law. So you're not necessarily even making or partaking in the legislative process um, in, in Rousseau's model. And then finally, there's, I think, the biggest point, which um, is probably the source of the most debate, which is that Rousseau does say in this sort of abbreviated way um, that, you know, I would have lots of more to add. I'd have more reflections that the simple right to vote in... in Um, on the simple right to vote in every act of sovereignty. And no one can take away this right from citizens. But then he has a big caveat. But I also have something to say on the right to give your opinion, to propose legislation, to divide and to discuss. And the government should always keep that only to its members. So basically, and this is a very open way of thinking about it, only officials should have the right to propose legislation and the people just have the right to consent. But it's a very limited understanding of lawmaking. Um, and he does end by saying, you know, this is an important topic that I would have to discuss elsewhere. Um, and I'm not aware of another treatise where he does that. But I will note that already in the, the dedication with which I started, he, he made the same idea. Uh, he made the same point. Uh, I would have liked that to uh, prevent sort of self-interested projects that are poorly conceived of, various recent referenda come to mind, um, and dangerous the dangerous innovations that lost the Athenians, each citizen would not have the power to propose new laws as they wished.
1: I'll leave that there.
2: All right, so I have a very short conclusion. Um, and it is sort of about why I think this is important beyond um, the various arguments among Rousseau scholars. My hope in excavating this sort of equality solution to the problem of guaranteeing freedom as non domination is that I think it can help us sort of rethink how we tell the history of Republican liberty. Mostly we think of this as a story between monarchic and Republican ideologies Therefore, we focus on things like despotism, republican exclusivism, and political slavery. But to get back to something I, I mentioned earlier, you know, monarchy was not the only threat to republicanism. Um, and for for many republics, whether it was the, the Roman Republic or the Florentine Republic or, frankly, the Republic of Geneva, uh, at the time Rousseau was writing, liberty faced an equally pressing challenge the optimi, uh, from the Optimi, from the Grandi in Florence or the Patrician families in Geneva. And this aristocratic or oligarchic danger tends to present itself very differently than the monarchic threat. Um, it tends to be that these powerful elite families don't want to obey the same laws. Um, and to defend yourself against the threat of these elite and powerful families, it's not an issue of passing new laws. It's an issue of enforcing existing laws and making sure that everybody is following them. Uh, and that was the goal, I think, or oh, that was the at least the gist of what Cicero and Midi write about when they talk about the equality of rights. It was very exactly what the Florentine Republic tried to do when it raises the powers of the Palazzi and, and creates, as its chief executive office, the Gonfaloniere di Justizia, the standard bearer of justice. It would literally Carry the flag of Florence to the front door of the misbehaving elite families in order to uh, bring the law to them since they tried to escape it. Um, and I think it's also, as we saw, um, and hopefully I convinced you of, uh, it was a central concern of Rousseau's. And maybe in our own plutocratic age, this is a history that we would do well to recover. Thank you.
0: Thank you.